0: Welcome to Small Biz Matters, People, Purpose, Policy. It's great to be in the studio here at Triple H 100.1 FM. And today we're talking all about the Australian Traditional Medicine Society, which is uniquely positioned to advise government on health, women, the economy and micro business. So how do they juggle multiple policy areas and represent small businesses so successfully for so many years? Women are core to the success of the Australian health economy. And the same goes for traditional medicine. The vast majority of Australian Traditional Medicine Society members are women, micro businesses, working from home, juggling a family, their practice and continued education. So how does ATMS leadership best represent their members when policy areas in which they advocate across so many social, economic and small business issues? Plus, they're cross-jurisdictional. They work in federal, state and local governments. It's an excellent example where an association uniquely intersects between policy and small business, and we're keen to hear from Christine Pope, the Director, because, and she can, she's both the Director of the Australian Traditional Medicine Society and the Treasurer and Director of the Council of Small Business Organisations Australia. Plus, she still runs her own practice right here in the area around Triple H. We're going to hear from her after this. Welcome to Small Biz Matters, a show where we are dedicated to empowering small businesses and advisors to engage with policy and advocacy. Why? Because what government does very much matters to all small biz, good and bad. Sponsored by the Australian Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman's Office, Each week, we sit down with experts, advocates, business leaders, policy makers, and politicians to dive into specific areas of government policy that affects your clients and your business. We'll give you the heads up on what's coming down the policy pipeline. Find out who's fighting in your corner and empower you with ways you can influence those decisions which affect your business every single day. We proudly broadcast live on our local community radio station, Triple H 100.1 FM, the Community Broadcasting Network and later wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Let's hear from this week's expert on Small Biz Matters. People. Policy. Purpose. Well, thank you so much, Christine Pope, for joining us today live in the studio of Triple H. Welcome, firstly, and it's not that far for you to go because you are a local practitioner in our area. Exactly,
1: I'm just driving up the road from St. Ives or down the road. I'm never very good with geography.
0: Yeah exactly that's right um so it's good to uh good to speak to you and we're going to talk to you a little bit today about mainly the work you do with the Australian Traditional Medicine Society but also with COSBOA the council because you've been advocating for both small businesses and women in health and the health practitioners in your space for a number of years now you're incredibly passionate about it tell me how you got involved with advocacy in the first place
1: Look, it was really accidental. We were um, in 2014 15, we were um, confronted with a review um, which had been bottom drawered and then was dragged out, and they used it as an excuse to justify removing some natural therapies from private health insurance. So that was the point at which I went, okay, well, we're clearly we need to figure out how we can advocate for our practitioners. And that was when I got involved with um, initially with Cosboa, but also with a few other organizations that were looking at advocacy in that space. So was how do we tell politicians that a they've made a really bad decision? And B, how do we get it changed?
0: Exactly. And it's it's a tricky one really because um, you need to get in front of them and their time is so limited and you've got so many issues to to deal with. Is it a matter of striking off the ones that uh, they're doing the worst at to begin with? Is it sort of the worst off, get rid of the worst ones first and then talk to them about how they can fix things and do, do it better?
1: Look, in that case, I think we were really just learning and the first few trips I had to Canberra, we were basically meeting with anyone who would take a meeting with us. It wasn't very targeted. How long ago was that? Oh, it would have been seven or eight years ago, really. Um, and we were also working with a couple of other organisations to come up with advocacy campaigns. Um, I think one of them was called How Dare They. So How Dare They Remove Rebates from Natural Therapies but also from Taking It Out of Private Health Insurance because at the end of the day, you know, it's a decision that people have about the health care they want and people aren't one size fits all. Natural therapies actually cover people for a lot of conditions where either they can't cope with the medications or the treatment that's recommended or it helps them manage the side effects of those treatments and medications.
0: So let's talk about that issue because that that is a really serious problem for your industry, um, having the removal of, and you're going to be able to describe this better than I can, but removing those rebates, particularly from private health insurance, um, would, was that not completely catastrophic for the industry plus the effects of COVID? I mean, how's that How's that been for you guys?
1: Well, it's been a journey through the last few years because that happened a couple of years. I think the, the legislation kind of was finalised in about 2018 And for some practitioners, it's really socioeconomic. It's about restricting people's choice, but it's going to affect those people who are at the margin more. So, look, the area I'm in, St Ives, it made a little bit of a difference. But for practitioners who are like in the Outer West or something else, it made the difference between someone coming and doing something about their health and not. Mm. So actually what the change made people do was actually stop investing in their healthcare And then relying on, you know, basically when it got really bad, they'd show up at emergency or something else. So kind of the complete opposite of what you're trying to do. And when I talk about the modalities that were removed, there were 16 of them, but you know, some of the critical ones like naturopathy and herbal medicine, shiatsu, um, you know, some of the exercise therapies like yoga and Pilates, I mean, there is some good research, but The thing is, when they were looking at this original review, they were looking at a really high standard of evidence, which is the sort of thing that big pharma can do because, you know, they've got millions, billions of bucks to throw at it. No one's going to throw billions of dollars proving up vitamin C. You kind of know it works. You don't really need to do 47 studies so that you can compile it all into a systematic review.
0: And also thousands of years of evidence of mm. people doing yoga <laughs> in, in, in a way to maintain um, their health before they hit the emergency room. I mean, yeah. it's, it is quite crazy, isn't it? Because like you said, it comes down to money. The pharmaceutical giants have the money to throw at these, uh, at, these int- at these case studies, at these research this research that they can do. They can hire an entire university to do research for you. But the um, Traditional Medicine Society doesn't have the same sort of funding to be able to do the research to such a level that the government is expecting.
1: That's right. And, you know, look, um, over the years there's been um, some push to, you know, invest some money in natural medicine research before you pull the plug on things that support people with diet and lifestyle changes and stress management, why don't you actually look at funding some of the research in these areas to see if the case studies you have of people actually improving are actually valid. And But most of the time we've never got the percentage of funding. I mean, for example, in 2014 there was a study done saying as many people went to a natural therapist each year as a doctor you know, so it's an incredible investment by people largely self-funded in their own health care.
0: Mm. And therefore taking the funding away from the government. So ultimately it's a win-win for them. Yeah, exactly. So in terms of this funding, how does a, a group like ATMS go about trying to advocate to get the funding to investigate, to be able to prove to the government so that they can reintroduce something like the uh, Medicare or the private health rebates?
1: Um, look, most of the time we're actually we we've actually been relying on our members and donors because re- realistically we haven't had a lot of success at getting grants to fund these sort of things. I think it's something that I'm actually learning about through Cosbo is you know fund your own small pilot program and then look and see if you can roll that into something more significant that perhaps attracts some government funding. But I think we're still in the early stages for that sort of process. Um, You know, for us in terms of running the advocacy campaign, we worked with a couple of other groups and we split the costs of it so that, you know, it didn't fall so heavily on our members. But I was going to say there was a lot of great support. I mean, I think, you know, at the time we probably had about 10,000 members. We did a letter writing campaign and we got 5,000 letters into government about this change. So, you know, they're pretty motivated to actually do something about it because it affected so many of them across the spectrum.
0: Now, I'd like to speak to the bureaucrats who are listening at the moment. I know a number of them do, <clears throat> and I want to say that this is a great example of where different associations um, pull their resources, work together for a common interest. Mm-hmm. How how do you dispel those rumours that um, it's all a lot of infighting and you're all against mm-hmm. each other? This is a great example of where you work together collaboratively.
1: I think part of it is also the fact that a lot of people reflect on the history of the association, and you know there will always have been times when associations didn't agree on anything it's a bit like government you know there are times when you know it's very hard to get any agreement on a particular issue but it doesn't mean there aren't issues we can agree on and work together on Mm. and you know certainly the rebates has been one area that as a group we've worked on the other um was through covid we had this group of massage associations so of the 20 modalities we represent massage is one of the big ones Mm. and We had this group of um, various times four or five massage associations who would work together across um, state boundaries because each of them would have a stronger position in a state and perhaps be able to get someone in the state health department to actually talk to them and help get members back to work. Mm. So that was really effective through that. And at the moment we're actually um, lobbying about an issue around home care packages. So we're working as a group on that issue because the government's tried to impose another layer of bureaucracy between the associations and members and said that to access these packages, for example, you have to be with another association. What, two? Pardon? What, two? You can't just be with one. No. No, no, your association has to be a member of this other peak body for allied health, for example.
0: But that's just going to increase the cost for your members for membership.
1: God, yes. And, you know, Not to mention, it, you it's know, also, create extra work for you as and, a volunteer. And, and this body doesn't actually want to have this role. It was just someone thought it was a good idea. And it's, look, you know, we're doing the accreditation for health funds. We're monitoring that they're doing enough continuing professional education, maintaining first aid, maintaining professional indemnity insurance. Why we can't do this as well because we're already doing it, making sure that they're appropriately qualified, et cetera, et cetera, um, Yeah, it's just, it's just nuts. And, you know, the worst thing in the world with. Government is imposing another body or setting up a new body to do something which someone is already there and doing. Oh, It doesn't make sense from a cost perspective.
0: But it makes sense from a government perspective because that's what they do all the time, (laughs) duplication of services. You mentioned... We won't go into that (laughs) 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 You mentioned the work that um, happens across jurisdictionally and that's what makes it so hard to be, I guess, a a national body that has to work across different states because Mm. states deal with health, right? Or does federal deal with state? Where does health live?
1: Oh, look, it's um you know, if you look at something like the Healthcare Complaints Commission, it was originally set up in New South Wales and then rolled out across Australia with matching types of legislation and similar, but not the same names and similar, but not the same legislation. So each state has its own code of conduct. So really a lot of what we deal with is state-based issues. Um, And then federally you get decisions made on something like private health insurance and that's... A national issue. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. right. So.
0: <laughs> so you actually really do have to work across your, and if you're working in small business, of course, you're also, um, uh, you know, prosecuting issues that happen at the local level because that's where, um, you know, where people can run a business, etc., home-based businesses. And that's different between councils as well,
1: right? Oh, sure. I teach a course called transition to practice for our new graduates or for people who are going back into practice. And one of the things that always blows me away is there are 17 different acts, legislative acts, you have to be aware of when you're running a small business in this space. So it's everything from what you put on the labels on your bottles Ooh, yeah. to, you know, tax and accounting, and um, also then you've got restrictions around what. Each local council will let you do, which can be different between Hornsby and Coringai, for example.
0: because yeah, they're so far away from one.
1: Yeah, other. I know. I mean, very separated.
0: <laughs> so the local issues are things like, I guess, signage, parking, uh, whether you can run a business from home, what level, what uh, size of business you can run. I mean, you can't run a GP practice out of a home, for example, but you can um, be a small practitioner in
1: a, a front room of your house, right? Or I suppose this depends on which council you work well, with. Well, it does actually. And the thing is, um, Working from home can differ depending on which council you're in. Mm. Um, And also um, many years ago (laughs) the top floor of my building burnt down and all the practitioners had to suddenly find somewhere else to operate from for a while. One of them actually used someone else's space where they were working from home, they had a separate entrance, you know, they had parking out front. And because of neighbours' complaints, after three weeks she had to find somewhere else because, you know, there were all these people coming and going every hour.
0: And I assume that's because they had problems with parking.
1: Yeah, I I don't think it was really a parking issue. I think it was just a, a Karingai Issue. Issue. Special. <laughs> Limby.
0: <laughs> so, um, yeah, as you can hear, listeners, there's quite a few um, issues across different government jurisdictions. And this is why um, someone like the Australian Traditional Medicine Society, and we're speaking to Christine Pope at the moment, is so uniquely positioned to offer support uh, to the members. But also try and help them unpack what's needed. So when you've got a new member coming in, I know that you offer student rates and what are the main issues that your members are talking about at the moment when it comes to running a small business um, within the traditional medicine space?
1: Oh, look, the first thing is, you know, do I set up online or do I set up in person? So, you know, this is a really big issue I think going forward for a lot of um, high streets because COVID forced a lot of people to work from home, whether they wanted to or not. Now, for some of our members, if you're a massage therapist, bit tricky. Well, no, you can still. Oh, work you can from, work from home. I was you just can work online. from home, but you can't work online. No. Clearly, no. <laughs> that would, well, you know, I mean, if someone's prepared to pay you to give them a virtual massage, fine. Yep. But um, most of the time, no, you can't. You can't actually be hands off in that case. But there's different things that you need to think about. Then I think one of the big issues I see is for a lot of practitioners, they become very isolated. So in in that sense, if you're only seeing yourself every day um, and you become, you know, lonely and isolated, it's really important that you have other services available to members like events where they can actually network and meet with their peers and actually have those conversations because it's very easy to kind of go, you know, oh, you know, I didn't do well with that case, you know, other people could do better, blah, 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 when you're not surrounded by a cohort of other practitioners. I mean, I'm very fortunate. The clinic I'm in at St Ives, we've got eight other practitioners there. I've always got someone to talk to. You've got your own built-in community. I've got my own built-in community and I still struggle to understand why anyone would want to sit at home and work in front of a screen for three four days a week
0: yeah but the beautiful thing about um the traditional medicine opportunity the opportunities that it gives us a career is you can balance um you know especially women you can balance running a household you can run you know because we all run the household let's not let's not kid <laughs> <forget laughs> ourselves <laughs> we can we can talk about feminist issues and say we shouldn't but we do running a household running the kids around um being available to them some people are carers and look mm. after others and that's an opportunity there to you know expand your career work for your yourself be independent and continue your education and continue a career but like you say it can be very isolating
1: it can and i think the other thing too is you know it's important to make sure that when you're doing all that you're also looking after yourself and this is where i see a number of practitioners struggling with burnout because you know if you're running three full-time jobs it can be quite exhausting look the advantage of today is that you know with social media and websites and blogs It is very possible to run a home-based business and most people, you know, and really then you can focus on the areas that you're really passionate about. So you can have a practice that's just focused on gut health or just focused on hormonal balance. I'm focusing a lot on healthy ageing at the moment. I have a program called Ageing Outrageously. I think my biggest piece of creativity was the name, but there you go.
0: It was. It's a great name. name. We're going to take a break here on Triple H 100.1 FM. And when we return, we're going to speak to Christine Pope from the Australian Traditional Medicine Society a little bit more about how she influences government, um, how that journey from the last seven or eight years at ATMS has expanded and uh, the importance of organisations like COSBO. We'll be back after this. This episode of Small Biz Matters is proudly sponsored by the Australian Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman's Office. Aspifio assists, advocates, and provides information to Australia's 2.5 million small and family businesses when and where they need it. Aspifio delivers practical and actionable advice and research to governments on how to improve policies and legislation. Since its inception, Aspifio has responded to over 40,000 requests for assistance from Australian small and family businesses and provides access to dispute resolution services, including assistance with disputes that fall under the franchising, dairy, horticulture and oil codes. Aspifio also connects small and family business with mental health support should the need arise. As an independent advocate for small business owners, Aspifio is committed to ensuring that Australia is the best place to start, grow, or transform a business now and well into the future. See how Aspifio can support you at asbfeo.gov.au. Welcome back to the studios of Triple H 100.1 FM. We are speaking to Christine Pope, who is a director of the Australian Traditional Medicine Society and also the treasurer and director of COSBOA, the Council of Small Business Organisations Australia. If you want something done, ask someone like Christine to do it because she's awesome. Now, that's a lot to juggle. That's a lot of policy areas, particularly when you throw COSBOA into the mix. Christine, what? how do you find um, the time uh, to be able to juggle all that advocacy and personally to also work, run your own practice.
1: So I have basically my philosophy is that I do my practice two days a week. I have one day for each of my board roles and sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I'm writing policies documents or statements at um, nine o'clock on a Saturday night, but you know, I tend to work it around my other commitments and You know, in both those organisations, there are good people in the team who are also quite good at writing and putting things together. Um, Well, COSBOA particularly now is better resourced um, and we have a larger team so we've got policy people in there so it's not like I'm writing anything for that. It's more about advising on advocacy or perhaps attending roundtables or meetings um, and occasionally chairing the roundtables for COSBOA because, We've we've had a few tech issues lately. With
0: yeah, so you do those those roundtables to really engage with those stakeholder community, with engaging with sponsors and that's a really great way to keep everybody feeling as though they're across and, and making sure more people are across what's going on in small businesses.
1: Uh, and it's also a really good way to get input from members about what's happening and the impact of those proposed legislative changes, particularly in the IR space, on their businesses and their members and the sort of issues that I, I think there's nothing that compares to um, someone from government hearing the sort of impact it's going to have for someone who employs contractors that either they're, you know, going to be employing fewer people, they're not going to be taking on work because of these proposed changes,
0: yeah, they're going to. It's going to stifle economic mm. growth because a, it's going to cause confusion, mass confusion, and also it's going to be problematic because people are not going to want to have to go through more regulation, more red tape, just to employ someone to do a, a piece of work, um, which would ultimately mean the success of their business. We could see more small business owners themselves actually uh, having to do more work because they're not expanding and using contractors more regularly. I wanted to ask you about the work that you did with COSBOA, particularly during COVID. It was in a very intense period for policy change, particularly in the states' areas. What did you do to convince governments of the importance of natural practitioners and the work that they were doing, not only to keep people healthy but also to ensure that they could continue to operate as a business?
1: Look, we're involved with... um roundtables across various states. Um, Some of them were a lot better than others at taking that on board Um, and, frankly, sometimes we used, well, in New South Wales we can do this as a way to influence another state to perhaps get a bit more reasonable about who could go back to work. At one stage we had this ridiculous situation in one state where it was only allied health but they were confused about whether allied health included one of our modalities, which was acupuncture. So there was enforcement happening. So on some occasions we'd be talking to the small business commissioners to make sure that that inappropriate enforcement action was dealt with and, you know, fines or whatever removed. Other times we are on roundtables advocating for our members and the value of, you know, having that healthcare support through this process, basically reducing the burden on, you know, doctors, GPs and hospitals at the time.
0: Exactly, because not only were your members providing healthcare advice, and they could in you know, a lot of times do this online and continue mm. to advise and 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 be part, but but also be there for their patients. Maybe for some of those patients, they weren't speaking to anyone else except for their practitioners. So making sure sure that you could still operate online was critical. Wasn't there a time when you were being told that you might not be able to practice
1: online, and that didn't make any sense? Did it? in Queensland at one stage. Um, there was a a rule around the mandates where apparently an unvaccinated person couldn't practice online. And when we pointed out that that was kind of nuts and (laughs) to the best of our knowledge the virus did not spread through, you know, the internet. Internet cables. Um, It's not that sort of (laughs) virus, people, (laughs) you know. Um, Look, to be fair, they addressed that and, you know, resolved it. But, I mean, I do remember talking to one of our members who was on the Mornington Peninsula and when i think it was the i can't remember which lockdown it was in victoria because there were so many of them but the last one she had every call every call with every client that day they burst into tears about the impact of another lockdown the mental health implications for that yeah. was so significant and i mean she needed to debrief afterwards because she was carrying so much emotion from all these clients and you that were goes just back
0: devastated. goes back to the support that you offer in terms of providing a community yeah. to your members plus cpd credits plus all the mm. other things that you do as well and advocate for them so that was a really tricky period not only for um your your help your space and your um and your members but also the small businesses more broadly um what, what was it in your mind a successful way that government listened what was best practice that, that perhaps governments who are listening now could take forward uh, and actually use as as the gold standard moving forward for good mm. consultation? Because talk about a co-design. We were designing policy as we went. Mm. It was like hit the ground running. How do
1: you uh, ensure or encourage governments to continue to have that practice? Look, I think one of the things was it's about having the right people in the room and not actually being afraid to go, look, we don't need 300 representatives on a webinar where we produce a PowerPoint that's not consultation you know that's a presentation mm. and usually not a very good one frankly um, So what I think they need to do is make sure that they're getting the right people in the room, a smaller group, make sure they're hearing from everybody and that they understand the ramifications of any decisions they're making. As I was going to say what I saw in the the A grade consultation was, When they became aware of a problem, they took it on board, they workshopped it, they came back with an answer within a week. You know, with some of the other states, um, you'd raise the same issue every single meeting, the few meetings you actually had, and no one had the authority to make decisions. So the other thing is about decentralising decision-making in this, punching it down to where people are at the coalface and allowing them to actually get on with it. Yeah. You can't have it all centralised in one person. Yeah, that's right. Or, or department or whatever it is, you know. So I think it's really important to get the right people in the room, to actually have people who will contribute. And, you know, if at the start of this you had a lot of people from associations who'd never been involved in any of this sort of consultation before. They're clearly fairly intimidated by being in a meeting with, you know, the head of the Department of Health or finance or whatever it was. You need to make sure that you actually have a process in place to actually get input from those people.
0: Okay, this brings me neatly around to the next question I was going to ask, which is all about a peak. So COSBOA, the Council of Small Business Organisations, their members are uh, are other associations who represent different industries Mm. and they're a peak body. Why is it more important that COSBOA is in the room than, say, ATMS Um, when you're talking about big picture
1: issues? Look, it's just the advantage of being able to work across a broad range of policy issues and pull information from who's relevant. So, you know, with healthcare, there's four associations in COSBOA now who are involved in that space. So you've got two choices. You can either have someone from that organisation be on that panel or committee, um, or you can pull the information as you need it into the group. So I think this is where peaks really work well at actually getting the information from their members, figuring out what's going on, what's needed to change, and then actually working with them to implement that change. It's also the power of, you know, most, most associations have always got, you know, 3,000 more things they want to do than actually resources they have. So, again, working with a member group like that, you can actually um, really leverage the value of your work. Because, you know, sometimes it can be you've got individual members attending things, other times it can be the organisation attending on behalf of several groups. And so you basically can really promote that voice.
0: Yeah, and that makes so much sense, right, because then you can say, well, look, we are speaking on behalf of X number of members, it Mm. becomes the tens of thousands, Um, and you can speak to say, well, we're representing these different groups and that has a lot more power So when COSBOA speaks on small business broadly, I guess that has more power than a group that mixes and matches with big business
1: and small business, right? Exactly. And, I mean, you know, you think about it, if you look at, say, Coles and Woolies who have been in the news a bit lately, um, you know, they've got I think their profits last year were $2.7 billion. I mean, that's just your profit. What do you have to spend on advocacy and influencing government? The only way that small business is going to have a voice is by uniting and actually having a peak body that actually represents it.
0: That's right, because resources are so tight. Mm. Um, And you mentioned before about how you've got so many different um, uh, things pulling at your strings and you've got limited resources. Does coming together as multiple modalities or multiple associations together to speak with one voice, does that help share resources as well?
1: Oh, it definitely helps with sharing resources, but I think it also really forces you to get very clear about what it, What are your three or four priorities? You can't do everything. What are the things you can do that are going to make the most significant change for your members? Mm. What biggest bang for your buck, basically? But, yeah, you know, it's what's really going to make a difference. For I mean, you know, COVID was a classic example. It was about getting members back to work and supporting their clients. Um, it was about keeping people out of emergency. You know, um, especially when you think about things like you know chiropractors, massage therapists. Um, if someone, fifty percent of people will have a presentation to emergency for low back pain. Most of the time, it's an acute incident. It's not a chronic problem that needs surgery or something else. But if you don't get to see your chiropractor or your massage therapist for six months. Chances are that acute incident is going to flare up into something more problematic.
0: Yeah, I was going to I was going to talk about that issue of pain because, in a lot of ways, that's where you're keeping people away from, um, you know, healthcare options like GPs and emergency services. You are removing that need by keeping their. I guess, their pain constantly managed and therefore um, you're assisting. Why doesn't the government see that as a benefit in terms of an economic benefit to them and a lower cost with the emergency departments? Why is it so difficult to explain to them the benefits, the proven benefits of of what um, allied health professionals provide?
1: I think part of it is the absence of probably enough studies at the level that they want. I know Private Health Insurance Australia did one that found that people who had top um, cover for extras cost them $1,000 less per person for hospitalisations. Wow. So now, you know, you can't actually go its specific hospitalisations, but if you look at a lot of natural therapies, if you're seeing a naturopath or something on a regular basis and you've got gut problems... You're less likely to be presenting because you're actually dealing with the underlying cause of your gut problem, whether it's your diet, whether you're eating the wrong things, whether you're really inflamed, whether you just need to, you know, incre- I've got to say it, have three cups of vegetables a day. It's my favourite piece of advice, <laughs> um, you know. But whether there's something else going on and you're you're having these flare ups, I mean, there's a common condition called diverticulitis, which is little pouches which get inflamed. Now, I remember early on. My practice i had a client who was presenting to emergency once a month with treatment and with getting her off the foods that she didn't eat she stopped having to go to emergency so you know it's it's a question of actually dealing with the underlying cause rather than just palliating the symptoms
0: it's a great case study and it really shows you the benefits to the government more broadly mm. about what the, what the Traditional Medicine Society, but what is it that your members can do to be more actively involved? If you were speaking to a group of them now and they were thinking, wow, this is really great, I didn't realise what ATMS does for us in the advocacy space, how do you engage with your members to make sure that they're involved in that policy advocacy situation?
1: Well, first up I'd, I'd actually encourage them to have a relationship with their local uh, member. So you know,
0: so you have um, like community-based local members that are sort of the
1: leaders within ATMs. Oh no, I mean, as in the local politician. Oh, the MP <laughs> that, that 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 one. <laughs>
0: yes, yes. So go to events where they're there and talk yeah. about the benefits of what that they provide to the community.
1: Yeah, and look, um, my local MP has regular um, uh, kind of whistle stops where he'll be in an area, and you can go and talk to him about an issue. And I remember um, on one occasion it was a great very... opportunity to bail them up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I remember on one occasion I actually had a sprained ankle and I was trying to manage in the queue with on crutches and his staff were very kind and put me at the top of the queue and I got to have a good chat. So, yeah. you know, engage with your local politicians and uh, do it in a respectful and appropriate way and, you know, just make them aware of it. One of the things I've noticed after years of walking around Parliament House is Everyone there tells you they use natural therapies but they all use different things and they think that the other things are a bit nutty. But, you know, it's like <laughs> but but what, they, what they do is really helpful and really works for them. And what I'd say is it comes down to individuality. You know, some people like a bruising massage, other people like very gentle treatment. You know, it is very specific to you as an individual. And we should have the right to choose the sort of healthcare we want.
0: That's right. Absolutely, we are. We're living in a in a mm. fabulous country where we've got those opportunities presented to us, and we've got the availability. But it's, it can sometimes be um, those with more who are wealthier who have got that that uh, that presented to them, and, and they, they they can take advantage of it. But many who can't.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So um, just to wrap up today, how would you like to see your members be more involved with advocacy? Would case studies help you to do the work that you do? Would them engaging with their local chapters help? What is it that they can do?
1: Oh, look, case studies would be really useful. I think actually having a a small write-up and, you know, for if you're an ATMS member, please write it up for our journal. Our editor will be thrilled. Um, but, you know, writing up a case where someone has perhaps, um, you know, being able to manage a chronic disease and being able to participate more fully in their lives and enjoy their lives, I think that's the sort of thing that actually provides really good evidence. And you can build on that then to see whether there are any common themes coming through and whether we could then run a small pilot or something like that.
0: And it's not an essay. You no. don't need you don't need like huge amounts of detail. You don't need it proofread. Literally bullet points about what the journey was and what that patient journey was. I can tell you as a former advocate into federal government that stuff is gold, and we used it quite a lot during COVID, didn't we? In those mm. campaigns to explain that not only are you affecting economically the the viability of these businesses, but you're actually affecting their patients and the broader community as well because they haven't got that access. Exactly. And we'd like to see the access improve. Christine, thank you so much for coming on the program today. It's been a delight talking to you once again. Uh, Thank you for coming back on Small Biz Matters. Where can people find out more about ATMS?
1: So probably the best source is our website, but we're also across a lot of social media with Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.
0: And if you're involved in that particular sector of the small business economy, make sure that you subscribe to their newsletter and make sure you subscribe to Small Biz Matters because you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. We've got over 220 podcasts available for you to listen to, and particularly around the area of people, policy, and purpose. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Christine. You're very welcome. And everybody else, enjoy your day.